After the deaths of William and Mary, the throne passed to Mary's sister, another daughter of the deposed James II, Queen Anne. Anne was the first monarch to naturally inherit, as opposed to invading or usurping, the now constitutionally limited throne, in which her powers were substantially checked by the Houses of Parliament. By an almost poetic coincidence during Anne's reign, England united with Scotland and Ireland to be known as Great Britain. So while Queen Anne was one of the first monarchs of Great Britain and of the new constitutional monarchy system, she is also paradoxically known as the last monarch of England. Anne's reign is especially famous because of her relationship with Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, the quote-unquote favorite of the Queen, and a woman with considerable influence over England's jurisdiction simply because she was the Queen's friend. Over the course of their lifetimes, Sarah and Anne's relationship soured, and Sarah wrote very unfavorably about Anne in her memoirs, and those notes were treated quite seriously by historians for centuries after, until Anne was reassessed at the end of the 20th century. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 54, Queen Anne. This episode is the last in our series about the English Revolution. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the episodes on Bloody Mary, Macbeth, the Gunpowder Plot, the English Civil War, and the Glorious Revolution. So last time our Getting to Know You question and continuing with favorite things of 2021, we talked about our favorite movies. And this time, my question for you, Race, is what was your favorite television in 2021? Okay, I am very excited to talk about this. I have a few answers I feel really strongly about. So the first one, and this has only been in the last few months, um, I find it when I like reflect on the things that I've liked throughout the year, it's really easy to like remember the stuff in the last two or three months. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. kind of hard to remember like all the way back in January. But I have watched this a bunch um, recently, and I'll, I'm going to put it on my list for sure. Um, and it's New Girl. Have you ever watched New Girl? I have seen episodes of New Girl, but I've never watched the whole thing. Yeah, I'd only ever seen an episode here or there. And for whatever reason, it had never called my attention before. Um, but yeah, I've, I've um, probably seen a season or two in the last few weeks um few months and i really like it i think it's definitely worth watching um it's a uh like i find i often find myself putting it on when i'm like folding laundry which kind of sounds like a bird mm. but it really isn't um yeah <laughs> like i i i really like stuff that i can just kind of like have going that it doesn't take a ton of my like concentration but that is still really funny i um have laughed out loud multiple times watching it so <laughs> it's not a new um you know show by any stretch of the imagination i think it ended in like 2000 i'm not sure it's it's a few years since it 2018 yeah. is when it when it went off the air but it got seven seasons and um so i'm oh, kind of wow. late to the yeah i'm kind of late to the party but definitely worth worth a, a a second look if you've um haven't given it a chance recently um my other answer is um a british show i've been watching a lot of british tv and uh, most of it on youtube 
and the you know clips of it or whatever that I can get my hands on. But there's a British show called Taskmaster that I have ah. become obsessed with. Are you? Do you watch <laughs> Taskmaster? I've seen a few episodes and have had a great time every time. I am absolutely obsessed with Taskmaster. <laughs> I think that it's an amazing show. So the thing about it is because I, I mean, I, I can only kind of guess as to why the case is um, why this is the case, but basically every season is on YouTube, mm, yeah. so especially the old season. So I think it's on season like 13 or something now. And like definitely the first 10 seasons are on like in a taskmaster specific YouTube account. So like the British people who own the show, I've just put it on YouTube for an American audience which is genius because I, you know, you can just sit down and watch full episodes on YouTube anytime you want. And it's absolutely wonderful. Um, The like elevator pitch for it is they take five, usually comedians, but five like known people. um, And they are asked to perform tasks for the taskmaster and you get points. And then at the end of the, at the end of 10 episodes, whoever has the most points wins. And the, um, the, tasks are things like um who can draw the best picture of a horse while riding a horse (laughs) (laughs) that's one of my favorites my other favorite one was they were led into a room in like an actual city council room in like some suburb of london and their um task was impress this mayor you have 30 minutes (laughs) it was just just like the mayor of the town and they had 30 minutes and they could plan and do whatever they wanted and just silly silly things like that um and it's it's greater than the sum of its parts. I have like fallen deeply in love with some of the people that I had never heard of before, but that I yeah. encountered on the show that I now think are just wonderful. So I can't recommend Taskmaster enough. It's on um, YouTube. You can go watch it. And I, um, I mean, I've I think I've seen every episode twice. Now I watched the whole thing from beginning to end, like all. 12 or 13 seasons and then went back and watched them again because it is just jam-packed and so can't recommend Taskmaster enough. Oh, I I do need to start binging Taskmaster. And British TV, I'll tell you what, it just hits. That's the thing about yeah. <laughs> British TV. I think that their crew of celebrities I find a lot more charming than the American yes. crew of celebrities. Yes. And, and A-listers... So it's smaller, right? Yeah. A-listers in the United States, I think it's all about like being hot and being in yep. movies, but in Britain, sorry, they're not hot. They're just funny and like <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely know what you're saying. And yeah, I have, I have just really enjoyed, I've watched that. There's a few other British programs I've like been watching on YouTube. And have you seen the Britain. end of year quiz show that they have? Yes. Yes, yes, that's such a fun one at this time of year. Yeah, like they do it every Christmas Day. Yeah, I think it's Christmas Day or New Year's Day or something. It's, yeah, the big yeah. fat quiz of the year. So fun. Yeah, I would also recommend go listen, go watch that. Those are on YouTube all over the place too. I'm not going to say this. I mean, maybe I should say this on the podcast again, but you must watch Dairy Girls. Okay, I know you've told me that. And I must, I promise. So what's the main girl from Dairy Girls, her name again? Or the one that I'm thinking? Nicola Coughlin, is that her name? Yeah, she was in Bridgerton, if you watched that. Oh, really? I didn't know she was in Bridgerton. But I, yeah. she, so they did every year, they also, because British are amazing, 
They also do a um, a New Year's Taskmaster like mini season where it's just like like five tasks instead of a. It's just like one episode. Oh, okay. And she was on one, the one last year, and it was very ah, good. That that makes sense. Yeah, and I just rewatched last year. They did a Great British Bake Off with the cast mm-hmm. of Dairy Girls. Yeah. And- it's just great. It's a fantastic show, but uh, fully recommend it. Okay, that's going so. On oh, it must. Yeah. So this year for me was a huge TV year. I feel like I have so many TV shows that I really loved, uh, but I will stick to my favorites, and I will say that one that I've really been loving lately, no surprise, is a historical TV show about the Wars <laughs> of the Roses. And that's called The White Queen. And it aired on Stars like probably six or seven years ago. It has Rebecca Ferguson from Dune in it. It has Max Irons, Jeremy Irons' son in it. And it's just a fantastic show, especially if you like historical drama as I do. So that's the one that I've been really into lately i also loved midnight mass which was the what's that guy's name mike flanagan who does the scary netflix shows every year he did um the house of bly manor and the house of hill haunting of hill house or whatever Mm -hmm. his show this year i thought was so awesome it's about a town of people living on an island in like I think Northeast America, probably off the coast of Maine or something, a a small town of like a hundred people. And one day their priest at the local Catholic church goes missing. And so some spooky antics ensue as a result may or may not be some supernatural antics as well. (laughs) Okay. I I was just floored. I thought it was a wild ride. Um, And then dairy girls, those are going to be my three answers for, favorite tv shows of the year okay awesome look at both of us having some <laughs> english shows or uk shows at least you know oh yeah i mean they do it right that's the thing yeah all right so today we are talking about queen anne in the final episode of what has actually been a surprisingly long series about the English Revolution. I feel like when we started writing the series, I didn't have many episodes in mind, honestly, because I didn't really know much about the English Revolution. And then every step of the way, we figured out there were more and more stories to tell that were just too good to pass up. So we are today with the last of those stories, which is Queen Anne. And Queen Anne really is not a part of the English Revolution story, I would say, but she happens to coincide with the deposition of her father, James II, and we talked about it in the Glorious Revolution episode last time. And there's also a really good movie about Queen Anne. So while we were here in 1688, I just thought, we can't miss this. We have to bring Queen Anne in just as a a little last note before we close out the series. So here we are today. Yeah, I think she definitely fits. And I think some of the things that kind of like come to a head in the story of Queen Anne are sort of the like through lines of everything we've been talking about with the English Revolution and everything. So she definitely makes makes sense. Very true. I think there's a lot of context to Queen Anne that you need. And we've given that context in previous episodes. So it just it's the right time. 
But before we get into her story and before we get into the movie that we watched as preparation for this episode, if any of you have joined us for that, um, I did want to close out the English Revolution with some last thoughts that we have about the revolution, basically a summary to this point. Um, Yeah, just kind of tying all the loose ends. And to start out, by the way, I have a little pop quiz for you, Race. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) If you pass the pop quiz, then great. We'll leave it in the episode. If you don't pass, we can always edit it out. Okay. (laughs) But this is an exercise that I find to be really interesting um, when I dig into Wikipedia and I start going down the rabbit holes and everything. So the quiz is... Off the cuff, do you think you can name every monarch of England between Henry VIII and Queen Anne? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but believe you. I bet you could. I can get close. I we bet. talked so, about all of them. Yeah. So, yeah. oh gosh, this is going to this is going to be embarrassing, but I can try. So there was Henry VIII um beheaded a bunch of his wives. And then um Oh, I'm see. I'm gonna miss a bunch of the minor ones. I just know that I am. See, see how many you can get. Okay, so let me work, let me work backwards. So we're talking about Anne today. Oh, and, that, I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. yeah. So then, before Anne was her sister Mary, yes. and before Mary was her father. Oh, there's so many Charleses and so many, so many um, whoever's. Okay, so her father was not Charles, but was. Um, Oh shoot! Not who's the? What's the other other the other name that everybody? The other name they have. Really? No. Think James. 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 Okay. Um. So James the first, who almost got blown up in the gunpowder plot, and then um. Before him is Bloody Mary, right? Mary Queen of Scots. So close. Okay. You gotta, you gotta help me out. Remind me. Before James the first was the queen who died without any children and executed his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, and that is the Virgin Queen Elizabeth the first. Elizabeth, and yeah, yeah, and then was, and then was Bloody Mary. Okay. And then, um, and then, and then you're to Henry, right? That's her dad. Yeah. Okay. I, that was fantastic. Claps all around. That was pretty close, <laughs> and I, I take pride in getting that close because I literally knew. Five percent of what I just said before all of this, I knew Henry VIII. Isn't that yeah? Isn't that the fascinating thing to think about? Like, if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have been like, uh, "I don't know any of them." Yeah, like (laughs) I know that William and Mary are a thing, and I know Henry VIII was a person, and I've heard of Bloody Mary, but like, it's so cool to watch all of the pieces kind of fall into place. And now I know this stuff because I feel like we have told stories about each of those individuals and that helps make it stick you know like when you're reading and you're trying to make a narrative for everybody but very well done that was fantastic (laughs) those of you following along at home I hope you got 100% as well (laughs) Um, so excellent so that's the English Revolution you know not really related to all of those people, but especially the people at the end of the story. And there's some good context set up by the people in the beginning of the story. But we come back to that initial question of what is the English Revolution? Because if you go to Wikipedia, it has a couple different answers. 
my question for you, Race, is what do you think is the English Revolution? I mean, if you had to sum it up based on everything that we've been reading. So this might be a more abstract answer than you were like thinking. But I, when I think of the English Revolution, everything we've talked about, what I think of is like, it's the result, like the, the natural result of what happens when people get to be king just because their dad was the king and Mm. and when that so a position that you get just from being somebody's kid and that position has a lot of power like that's basically what it is because these people were like well we don't want a catholic king and if you have some other mechanism like well we'll vote them out of parliament or we'll do something else but it's like no it's just this is who you get this person is this person because it's who their dad you know their dad Mm. was king or their mom was king or queen um and so, and that's the interesting thing about kind of this, the second half of what we've been talking about is rather than say, well, we just won't have, you know, this all be decided by who's, who's the next in line for the throne. They just say, well, what if we just don't give you so much power? <laughs> yeah. Like, what if, what if the answer is just, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic because, you know, parliament, we can do whatever we'd like with the Protestants or with the Catholics in parliament. And so... That's kind of like the the big view that I've taken away from all of this is like, this was England having to figure that out. Like, what do we do? How is the system actually going to work? Because like when we talked way back, like when we did our episode um, months ago about the lion in winter and talking about like Richard the Lionheart, these were people who were like, well, this son should be king because he's very brave and very like you know, he, he's a good leader and th- this makes sense. And so that's hundreds of years ago in the history of England. And then when you get to here, it's like, we have this like sickly boy, but he's the oldest. <laughs> so like, we'll just make him king and he can just like have a bunch of Catholics decapitated. Like it just kind of quits yeah. making sense as England becomes more powerful and more sophisticated as a nation. And so that's what I think of this kind of is like the, just the natural culmination of all of those factors fully agree i think every i mean maybe there's one missing here but literally every episode of this series we've talked about some kind of run-in with the monarchy system maybe that was henry the eighth you know basically floundering to get a son he couldn't get a son with his two wives and so he had to change the church and execute anne boleyn and who knows what all to get a son yep and then what else did you have? I mean, Elizabeth I died childless. So then there's a crisis in monarchy and that you send it over to Scotland saying, hey, come be our king. Every step of the way, there's been some kind of run-in. Maybe it was James II or Charles I being seen as tyrant kings. And, you know, at some point it had to break. I think a fascinating question is to ask why this didn't happen earlier in English history. Mm. Because... It's been a thousand years of monarchy at this point and tyrants are not unique, you know, and having a difficult time and getting a son is also not a unique problem. So Mm -hmm. why now did it finally break and the constitutional monarchy system, you know, it was finally able to be set up. Why was it only until this point, I think is also an interesting question to ask. I don't have the answer per se. Um, Although I do think that the establishment of men of parliament at this point was probably Mm. instrumental in that because parliament had been kind of small beforehand 
But now they clearly have so much more power. They waged a whole war against Charles I. And with James II, they wrote a letter to William of Orange saying, come be our king. Yeah. Parliament could never have done anything like that before. Hmm. You know? Yeah. What do you think is different between the story of the English Revolution and the story of the American Revolution? Or are they even similar? Is there anything kind of connecting the two stories? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, they're obviously different in that the American Revolution, it was like, it started on this date when America declared its independence and it ends on this date when they defeated the army who was saying, no, no, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, And it was also, it was explicitly about, we want to be independent, um, you know, a start a new country. So they're very different in that aspect. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the, the English Revolution is a lot more, um, and I think you've said this at certain points, but it's really more like a civil war, um, which yeah. mm-hmm. and at a certain level, what's the difference, you know, between a revolution and a civil war? Um, that's often a very hazy line if you, uh, you know, look at it like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was when you had all of these Protestants killing the Catholics with Catholics killing the Protestants or everybody worried that the other side was going to kill them. Um a lot of just internal strife, but yeah, it's, it's a very different ball game, a totally different kind of different world from something like the American revolution in my, in my mind. I, I totally agree. I think the American revolution is often told as a story about democracy and breaking down, you know, being oppressed by a King and having a more representative government. I don't know if that's you know true per se that that's what came about as a result of the American Revolution, but the idea that it was like a people's driven revolution, you know, like a populist yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the English Revolution, if the people were excited to see it, it does not seem to be people driven. It definitely seems like one body of power versus another body of power, and in the case of James II, that was these seven dudes in parliament who wrote a letter versus one king who's you know yeah going crazy yeah I'm, I'm... shout out by the way to henry the eighth for getting all this started because isn't it wild how he shook england to the core by inventing that new church yep that really set a lot of things in motion that I don't know that everybody would be happy about if they could have foreseen them. Yeah. It's that, and that's a good, that's kind of a corollary to what you were saying about the American revolution. Cause you were like, this is, you know, it's just, it's almost like nobody had ever thought of that in terms of the American revolution. Like, yeah, these people were mad, but it wasn't like the people rising up to demand, like you said, freedom. Uh-huh. Nobody yeah. had ever really thought of that. It was kind of the first time that had happened. And that's the same thing with Henry VIII. It was like, well, what if I just start this whole new thing? And then Rome suddenly doesn't matter on this side of, you know, the world anymore. And it's like, yeah, nobody had ever thought of that before. This is completely, complete sea change, different, different, you know, paradigm to borrow a phrase. So we missed a monarch in our list. I just realized. Oh no! Before Bloody Mary, we forgot to mention Edward the Sixth, who was the the young son of Henry the Eighth, who was like not well and had tuberculosis, and ordered his sisters to be imprisoned in the Tower of London. Oh my goodness! And then after him was Lady Jane Grey, Ugh, but she was 
she was disputed. She was never crowned. Okay, see, so we didn't really miss her. See, that's what happened when we started with Henry. I was like, I know there's going to be a million little mini ones that I'm the little mini say. ones. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Edward and Lady Jane Grey. We love you, but we did forget about you. <laughs> um. Well, I I like that quiz because it does bring us all the way up to Queen Anne. And um, like I said before, you'll kind of see, I feel like a lot of the kind of tensions and things that were going on throughout all of this, these stories that we've talked about that at this point now are spanning hundreds of years, kind of are all here in Queen Anne. She's a great, a great end point. Um, So we sort of just went through it. But if you think back to our last episode, James II, um, the one who gets kicked out and he runs and lives his life in exile, um, that is Queen Anne's father. And he had two daughters, Anne and Mary. Anne was um, of William and Mary. So she was, um, she ruled briefly. And then after she died, William took the crown um, as he argued um, that should be his right. So um, Mary died, William died. And then it fell to Mary. Um, Mary was born in 1665 and she died in 1714. So she was just 49 years old when she died. Um, She was a Protestant and um, as we know, was a really big deal because James wasn't. And that's why his daughters were favored for the crown. Um, she didn't reign long. Her life was kind of sad. She suffered from ill health most of her life. She was pregnant 17 times um, and lost all of her children. And so um, yet again, somebody who died without an heir, um, which causes all of these problems <laughs> repeatedly. Um And just as kind of a side note, we're not going to keep following this line, um, at least not right now. But on her death, the crown goes to her second cousin, George I, which is a pretty distant relative. A second cousin is not super close. And um, that his name was George I. That's the start of a line of King Georges. Um, This first King George is the grandfather of George III. So there were three in a row, George, George II, George III. And George III is King George of the American Revolution fame. So um, from, from Queen Anne that we're talking about now, we go straight into a line of Georges and we, and we catch up to the American Revolution. So a little context there. Um, Anne's reign was sort of interesting. She was immediately popular. And that was at least partly because she was English. William was not English and he had been ruling before. Mm. William of Orange, that's, that made him Dutch. And so he was a Dutch king. Um, of England and she was an English queen of England and she actually said at um, when she took power um, she said as I know my heart to be entirely English I can very sincerely assure you that there is not anything you can expect or desire from me which I shall not be ready to do for the happiness and prosperity of England so a little rah-rah go um, go England and so she was popular at the beginning Um, her her reign was troubled um, significantly. One of the major events was there was a war. Of course, there was a war. And this war um, was started because Charles II of Spain died with no heir. Of course he did. And so that's the kind of thing that is always going to be happening. Um, And so there were two competing claimants to the throne. Someone was like, well, I should take over after Charles. And someone else said, no, I should take over. Um, And her kingdom got wrapped up in that early in her reign. And, um, that would it would just have to weigh on you like if she, she knew obviously at a certain point okay i'm i'm not going to be able to have a child that can um, succeed me on the throne succeed me on the throne and so 
um, watching like Spain drag most of Europe into a war because of the exact same situation. Um, that would just be stress on top of what is already like a very difficult personal situation. So that was one insight I had thinking about her, her life. Um, and luckily it did not devolve into a war. The fact that she um, died without a, an heir, which is good. Um, something else interesting about Queen Anne is she um, was a patron of um, Handel, the composer Handel. Um, he went on to write the Messiah years after um, she, she was like patronizing him years, I think after she died. Um, and so the hallelujah chorus that I'm sure everyone has heard might be something you'll be hearing this holiday season. And so that comes from Handel who got, you know, a lot of his financial support and was able to live the life as an artist because of his patronage from um, Queen Anne. He also is credited with writing the tune joy to the world. And that's something you almost definitely hear this holiday season. So Thank you, Anne, for giving us some Christmas music <laughs> that we still have um, to this day. And so that's Anne. She, um, like I said, I, I, the summary that I have in my head of her is kind of a sad life. She was like obese and she wasn't able to walk at certain points in her life because she had very severe gout and other like inflammation issues and um, died young with no children. And that's Anne. Um, is gout still a real disease, by the way? Yeah. I <laughs> Do think people still have that? I think it's a lot more treatable now. I think you can get it from eating too much meat. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, that's one of those like, historical diseases. <laughs> um, yeah. Do they still make that? Yeah, it's like, can someone get consumption? <laughs> I yeah. don't think so. But... <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so let's see. Gout is a common and complex form of arthritis that can affect anyone. Arthritis, okay. Um, it's off, most often um, affects the big toe. That sounds terrible. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's not great. Go figure. Poor Anne, she did have gout, unfortunately. Um, I love the time context here, by the way, because we've come so far since talking about Henry VIII, who... Henry VIII's grandparents lived in the Middle Ages. And now, all the way at the end of this story, we're here in the Baroque period. We've got mm -hmm. Handel composing music. Jonathan Swift is writing his, you know, famous essays and everything. Uh, it's this cool is to also see. the time that, like, um, um, Isaac Newton is, like, a major scientific Yeah, we're getting so, into yeah. an era, and there's a lot of philosophers kind of mm -hmm. coming around. Yeah. I think John Milton was cited in our last episode as having something to say about James II or something. Yep. Um, it's cool to see. Yeah. So you mentioned that Anne was an endpoint to the story and she really is honestly, because when she died, she died without an heir and that closed off the entire run that we've just been through of yep. the Scottish Kings coming from James the first. That's the Stuart house as anybody that was born into that house was known as one of the Stuart Kings and she dies. That line closes off and the crown goes to the Georges, like you said, and the Georges are from the house of Hanover, which comes out of Germany. I'm pretty sure that George the first didn't even speak English. I think he was a German speaking person. Huh. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, she's an endpoint in a lot of ways, if not for talking about her house, then also for talking about the time period that we're getting into, because anything left of, you know, the, uh, 
the Queen Elizabeth time of life has now pretty much come to a close and we're getting into the Enlightenment era and people are wearing the poofy wigs as we will see in the movie. <laughs> Um, an interesting thing, though, about the House of Stuart is that as the House of Stuart closed out, there was an emergence of a group of people who were still interested in having Stuart kings on the throne. They just loved James. They loved all of his descendants. They were so glad to see Scotland come in, and they wanted that to keep going. So when Anne died and the crown went to the Georges, there was still a lot of pushback from these people who were known as the Jacobites. Anybody following this philosophy was known as a Jacobite. And Jacob, I think, in in Latin is the same root as James. So that's where that name comes from. And they, interestingly enough, promoted a baby prince that we talked about in the last episode, the infant son of James II, who caused all the drama and started the Glorious Revolution, at this point, when Anne dies, that baby prince is now in his late 20s, and they rooted for him to get on the throne. And huh. I don't know why, but they lost that fight. Otherwise, we might have had a James III. And he would have been Catholic, right? He would have been a Catholic. That would have also been a huge change. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, go figure. So the reason that we really did this episode was so that I could talk about one of my favorite <laughs> movies in the past few years and so that I could convince Race to watch it. Uh, it's a lovely movie about Queen Anne called The Favorite, spelled with a U, the British way. And it came out in 2018. It was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who also made Killing of a Sacred Deer. I know, Race, you love that one. I did. And The Lobster, which is also a film of his. I liked Killing of a Sacred Deer. I mean, I loved Killing of a Sacred Deer. I did not care for The Lobster. So I think Yorgos uh, is getting better with time. That's <laughs> my opinion of Yorgos. Um, it stars, the movie stars Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne, who is a personal hero of mine. I think she's probably the best actress in Britain right now. I really, really love her. And it also stars Rachel Wise and Emma Stone from the American side of things. And that's the favorite. It's considered to be a black comedy, which is a term that I don't really care for because I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know really what that's saying about this movie, but the movie does have kind of an irreverent tone and kind of a dark sense of humor that I can see how you would want to classify it that way. Yeah. It's intentionally very ahistorical in that they don't really stick too closely to the script of Queen Anne's life. And they speak in a way that isn't always time period accurate. But I would also fight for the opposite side of the coin here. And I would say that the movie is surprisingly accurate when it comes to the period elements. The clothing is impeccable. The language is pretty good. They got a lot of details of Queen Anne's life correct. Mm -hmm. And my favorite shout out, the cherry on top of the entire movie, is that the Baroque music soundtrack is so well (laughs) brought in. I, I love the period accuracy with the Baroque instruments. You hear a lot of harpsichord. Mm-hmm. You hear all of these, you know, big concertos. I just thought that the music was fantastic. 
So it's funny that you bring that up. So when I watched it, I watched it with subtitles on because I'm an elderly man. And um, I, I just like the subtitles. I feel like, especially at the first time I'm watching a movie, I feel like I miss stuff and I just like to know oh, everything. It's nice to read. Yeah. yeah. So I was watching it with subtitles on and any time like, you know, they enter a hall and there's music going in at the bottom would say classical music plays. And I just remember thinking Tyler would be furious that it's, I mean, <laughs> it's a good thing I did not see those subtitles because yeah. I would have been outraged. <laughs> yeah. The classical period for those who I have not patronized <laughs> yet. The classical period does not happen until about 50 years after Queen Anne's life. So <laughs> we're not there just yet. We have to get through Bach and Handel first. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the movie, as its subject matter, obviously takes Queen Anne, but the title component of the favorite refers to a position in the royal court that was actually a real position, and that's the position called the favorite. And the favorite was somebody, not just in England, but in other monarchies as well, who the king or queen just took as like a close, intimate friend into their confidence. And that friend, just by nature of talking to the monarch every day, had a lot of influence over what mm -hmm. decisions that that person was going to make. So it's considered to be a phenomenon, actually, of the 16th and 17th centuries. And Wikipedia has a good quote about this. It says, it was especially a phenomenon of the 16th and 17th centuries when government had become too complex for many hereditary rulers with no interest or talent for it. And mm. political institutions were still evolving. And when I read that, I thought, what a way to sum up the past series that we've just been talking <laughs> about. Because that is really a good point. We are not in the time of William the Conqueror anymore and Henry I and all those guys who were essentially their own rulers. You know, they were just kind of doing what they needed to do. What did a king do back then, right? Like a king would conquer enemies and say, if you murdered anyone, you're going to jail or you're getting executed. The king had like three jobs, tax people, I guess, but not too much. Otherwise they're going to get mad. Being a king was a lot simpler of a thing. No yeah. offense to any of our old kings. Mm -hmm. You just had to be like good with a sword, but that's not the case in the 1700s. And at this point, being a monarch is so complicated. You have this whole house of, you have two houses of parliament in Britain, and you've got this whole system of peerages with all these dukes and duchesses who need to be appeased. There's all kinds of like technological and you know economical innovations that are happening in the city of London and all the cities of England. It's a lot to deal with, you know. Yeah. One person who inherited the throne is not necessarily going to be equipped to deal with all of that, whether or not they're interested, much less whether or not they're capable. Like, here's, a, here's an example. Just imagine that you were just forced to have the same job as your parents. Yes, and like, you had no choice. <laughs> yeah, like, what are the odds that you're going to be good at it? Or, like you said, <laughs> let alone like it, you know? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Like, the odds that you would have somehow have both are infinitesimal. You just right. probably wouldn't. Right. Um, this is funny, though, by the way, because my dad and I do have the same jobs. Oh, that's right, you do. That's <laughs> pretty clearly. But I know that you didn't with your dad. No, yeah, so. no, that's that's not the case. And I feel like most people, if you were like, yeah, this is just what you're going to do now, 
you'd have a lot of people who are like, this is not the right fit for me. And that's one thing when it's your career, but it's a very different thing when it's like the lives of everyone in your kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Literally like the justice system is in your hand and you're like, I'm not, I'm just not interested in justice, you know, (laughs) it's not happening today. So the favorite, there's that old aphorism, by the way, what is it that good CEOs hire their, um, hire the people that do what they do poorly. Mm, a, a CEO yeah. has weaknesses and they hire the people who are good at their weaknesses. I think something along those lines. And that's kind of the position of the favorite here because Queen Anne has whatever weaknesses she has. So she has a friend who can be good at those things and help her out with the things that she needs help with. Yep. So this is, Referring to a real position and a real woman that was in Queen Anne's life, whose her name was Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough. And she was a close friend who I think was close with James as well. And she has some kind of historical ties with the monarchy. I think their families were close or something, but her and the Queen, I think, were similar in ages at least. And she yeah. became the Queen's favorite. And as such, she was very famous in England. There are lots of paintings of her in like a very fancy style, which means that she was quote unquote important. <laughs> and she was known, I think, in the way of, you know, maybe a celebrity today. And she was known as the queen's favorite. She held a lot of power over the queen. She was also kind of famous for, um, let's not say talking back to the queen, but something like, it, you know, where she was very honest and upfront with the queen and didn't really just flatter her in her ear, but would put her in her place and tell her, this is how we should do things. Yeah. So she had a lot of power in England and she made a lot of decisions, but over time, her position was eclipsed by another woman who emerged. And that woman was a cousin of Sarah. Her name was Abigail. And she found herself gaining favor with the queen at the same time that Sarah was falling out of favor with the queen. So Sarah and the queen kind of had a falling out, whereas the queen and Abigail had kind of a falling in. The movie goes so far to make Anne's relationship with both of these women a sexual relationship. That may or may not have been true in real life. And I think it's interesting that historians argue both sides pretty evenly. There's not like a clear cut yes or no answer here, but I think there were always rumors that Anne and Sarah may have been romantically connected. Um, I mean, the movie seems to suggest that Anne is kind of sexually tied to these women who I think in return are just using her. Would you say that? Like, is yeah, that what that's you definitely how, yeah, that's definitely how the movie shows it. I mean, um, maybe less so with, um, with, Sarah. with Sarah Churchill. That did maybe seem like they, you know, had a natural attraction. I almost got the sense that the movie was saying, like, but, um, you know, this new Abigail girl is, you know, literally just doing this for for the power that comes with just it. She's not, power. Like, yeah, sexually attracted to women at all. She just wants the ear of the queen, which, like you said, if you can get the ear of the queen, then you are, you know you're there you're in the in the seat of power and so makes sense yeah. that you'd, you'd go for it if you if you, that was something you wanted i thought it was a little sad seeing abigail's story um maybe this isn't really true but at least in the movie it's it kind of seems like she comes from nothing she has like a cinderella mm-hmm. story where in the beginning of the movie she's literally falling out of a carriage into mud 
and she has she's being whipped and she has to work in the servants quarters and it's just a really sucky life and so it's like yeah if you can get the queen on your side why wouldn't you (laughs) yeah do what you got stay yeah at least like you don't have to work in the kitchens and get whipped all the time yeah anyway what did you think of the movie Oh, so I have so many thoughts about this movie. It was really, really fun to watch. I told you before, like, this was one that I started and I was like, I'll watch some of this tonight and then I'll finish it tomorrow night after I'm done with work. And I did not end up doing that. I watched the whole thing because <laughs> I was just so um, excited to see what happened. So it's it's really fun because it's not, like you said, it's not historically accurate in a lot of aspects. Like, a bunch of stuff is take like you know her husband is um Anne's husband was alive for most of the years that this movie supposedly covers and he's just not in the movie he's just not the movie right yeah he's just not the there and like a lot of stuff that you know they show in the movie just straight up didn't happen but it doesn't matter because like i read some interviews with the cast and crew and they were like that wasn't what we weren't making a documentary we just wanted mm-hmm. to like play with this dynamic and i feel like that's a really um a really good indicator of a good story is that it it's something you could and this doesn't have to be every story but if you have a story that you can take out of its context and say this is like the basic like the engine of this story like this is the the dynamic or the struggle Mm -hmm. or the conflict um there are stories really powerful stories that you could just take it and put it anywhere you could put it in space you could put yeah. it in Roman times. You could put it in Wall Street, like Hamlet's one, like that, right? Like you could take Hamlet, and it could be, oh, it could be anywhere at any time, and people can kind of just like relate to it. It's it's like a sort of something universal to it, and so I feel like this is a little bit that way. Like there's a powerful person, and then there are two people competing to be in their good graces to like elevate themselves, and they you know start it gets cutthroat. And it's like, that's something you, that this could be the favorite in space. It could be the favorite in yeah. caveman times. It could be anywhere. And so, um, so in that sense, you know, who cares if this is exactly how it happened? It's just a really interesting, almost like case study of like, um, you know, ambition. And so really fun in that sense. Another way of kind of summarizing what I just said that I kept thinking about as I was watching was this is just mean girls but with really high stakes (laughs) like it's just it's just two two women who are like i want to be her best friend yeah best friend that's a good point i didn't think about that and and so again uh, the favorite exactly so like in that sense it was like i don't even you don't have to know at the end of the movie, if somebody just said, oh, that, that there was never a Queen Anne, it would be like, I still liked this movie a lot. Like, who cares? It's not a documentary. you know. And so really, really loved that. Um, and I've got some other things we can talk about, about like specific scenes and some of the like the ways that it was directed, which at first I w- didn't like. I was like, I don't know why the he's camera doing this. Is weird, right? The camera is very weird. And I, I was like, I don't think I like this. But towards the end, I finally started to appreciate it. And I actually have kind of a theory. I don't know if it's a real thing, but I have a theory about why he did it. So um, but those are my overall thoughts on it. I loved it. I love it. Let's dig into some of those individual elements. I mean, I, it's hard to talk about like what, what did you just like about the movie? There's no direction here, but I, I feel like that's the way to do it. And uh, sure. I guess anyone who wants to watch the movie at this point but doesn't watch spoilers, you should pause the podcast and come back to it. 
Yeah, and I, I don't really have any spoilers. I just have two kind of big things that I'll say. So one is a scene that I l- just loved and couldn't look away from and thought was so awesome. So there's a couple of scenes, like a series of scenes where these two women, the two like vying for power, um, go and shoot um, birds. Ah, yes. <laughs> I love that Yeah, and so if you have ever done this or seen people do it, you know, like nowadays people will go out with, shotguns and they'll throw clay pigeons that's what we call them like little you know ceramic discs in the air and then you see if you can shoot it and it breaks into pieces and it's kind of exciting um and i I knew that this was a historical thing they used to just use real pigeons you go capture a bunch of pigeons and then you let it out of a cage and then you shoot it and maybe you hit it maybe you don't and so there's scenes where these women are using these old like firelock musket things to shoot at pigeons and um there's just one scene and the the perspective on it um maybe it was very obvious like to the to the point of being heavy-handed but there's this one they're standing next to each other you know shooting and then they there's one camera angle where um emma stone is holding her gun and then the camera angle shifts and it's just pointed right at um rachel weiss's heart like oh it's just if you pause that and just like just put it on a wall it would be like okay i can i can i get everything i need to from this because they're like together and doing like an activity like they're they're quote unquote friends you know they're Mm -hmm. they're they're spending social time together but like the way that the the language that the camera speaks in that moment is like just unmistakable there's just she's literally holding this like giant And it, it lingers there for a minute while they're talking and they're kind of snipping at each other like, oh, I see that you've been spending a lot of time with the queen. I wonder wonder if she's going to get tired of you anytime soon. And it's like, this is yeah. such a great little moment. And then there's a scene, um, it's right after that, where um, the there's a really, a, a bird is shot very close and Rachel Weiss just gets this big splash of blood on her face. <laughs> and oh, it's just, it was just a very, very... Um, fun is is the right word but it feels kind of wrong but just a very fun scene like it was very tense but but they're but very relaxed like nobody was going to get hurt but there was it couldn't be more clear that like we are at each other's throats even though we're out here like you know basically going to the movies together but it was there's so much tension so i really really loved that and then the other thing that i'll say about the camera work that i kind of came around to so um throughout the movie there's several times where it's filmed in like a fisheye yeah i would describe it like like everything is distorted so you can see like a whole room in a way that you can't like the you know um, you got you you understand what i'm saying like the whole room is just like fisheyed out and at first i was like why is he doing this this feels so (laughs) weird why is this director doing this to us and um and there were two things that I, towards the end, kind of realized sort of why I think it might have happened or what it made me think of and like um, why I ended up sort of turning towards it. So one of them was a lot of what's going on is is a, is a big spectacle. So like they're in this grand hall and there's all of these people. And so it does sort of give like a sense of the scale or like it feels a little overwhelming, like you're just literally pinned back against the couch and it's like there are people everywhere and things going on everywhere that's one thing and then the other thing that um it eventually struck me as like oh i know where i've seen this before and where i've seen it is surveillance videos 
it yeah. looks like oh yeah yeah it looks like those videos of like like it feels like i'm watching cctv of a castle in the 1600s because the surveillance camera needs to be able to see as much as possible so they're gonna use that lens fisheye exactly so yeah. yeah you can see like a whole room yeah you're gonna see like a weird distortion of you know this bank yeah or, or like the walmart you know the the t- the cameras outside the atm are always like fisheye like this and so I, I realized that I was like, oh, yeah, that's where I've seen this kind of effect. It's not used in movies hardly at all that I can ever think of. But um, I liked that because then it was like, oh, yeah, that it kind of is what this is. This is like the um, the like hidden tapes of what's going on in the castle. Like people are sneaking around. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting. Like I said, I don't know if maybe I'm reaching too far on like the meaning of the camera use there. But it was kind of a fun thing to realize, oh, that's where I've seen that before. And, um, you know, it's it's fitting, I think, based on what those what everyone was up to sneaking around behind each other's back in the castle the whole time. So for sure. Don't you think that the funny camera angles also contribute to like a sense of whimsy for the movie? I feel like the tone is so clear with the way that they're speaking and the way that they're dressed. And so the camera angle just kind of adds on top of that. Mm, Yeah. So I I think one of my favorite things about this movie, it really did strike a chord, at least at the time that I watched it, is that it relieves us of a pet peeve that I have about most historical movies or anything where you're talking about the English monarchy, which is that a lot of those movies and TV shows are really boring. And they're boring because the people in them are really stiff. Yeah. I feel like there's kind of a just like a fallback method that people use when filming old time periods, which is just everyone is like prim and proper and uptight and stiff and they're speaking in like really stilted language. And there's just no reason to believe that people in the past would have been like more boring than people are now. I find that totally absurd also it's just like not true like go ahead and read the canterbury tales right those people aren't boring (laughs) yeah they're They're very bawdy and riotous yeah that's one thing that i i don't love in in no movie that you watch do people ever like tell jokes and people are laughing at them it's always like oh i'm adam driver and i'm gonna say this and i'm saying no one's gonna laugh at it yeah yeah like people would laugh yeah, and like people would try to tell a joke that doesn't really work, or like people would try and kid around, and it's like we don't depict. Oftentimes, we don't depict people that way, and certainly, like you're saying, in a historical fiction, it's like everyone's just like, "Well, we'll see, we'll see about that, won't we, Mordecai?" And then they walk yeah. down a stone hallway, and it's like that's not how people were. Like, certainly, it couldn't be, you know. Yeah, it's it's just like the difference is really felt when you see a movie like this or when you see another one of my favorite movies, which is the little hours. I don't know if you've Mm. ever seen that. I haven't. That's Oh, it's so, I'm just going to give an ad for it real quick. This episode is brought to you by the little (laughs) hours, a movie from 2017, which has Aubrey Plaza and Alison Brie. And they are enacting stories from the Decameron by Boccaccio, which was written in the but even though they're acting in 12th century clothing, they are speaking in their 21st century voices. Oh, fun. It is very, very fun. And so I love that kind of thing because it, 
you you feel the difference. It's like, oh, in history, time was probably fun and it was nice to be alive. You know, it wasn't like this boring gray TV show like Game of Thrones or something. Yep. Anyways, I, I know that I went into this episode saying that my favorite TV show this year was The White Queen, but I am a man of many contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like that the movie takes a, a light tone and... I also like that it tells a, a true story, you know, partially true at least, that we don't talk about a lot. This is a time period that I feel is very neglected, especially in the arts. So I'm always happy to see some poofy wigs because I, I feel like that's just not <laughs> commonly brought up, you know? Yeah. And I love Olivia Coleman's performance. I think all oh, three yeah. really were fantastic and they have a synergy together that makes any one of them essential to the whole thing. But I especially love Olivia Coleman. I just thought she was so funny. Yeah, when I definitely agree. She's like talking to Sarah in the first scene of the movie and Sarah's like, we have to raise taxes because the war's going on. And she's like, oh, it is? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. still going on. And the queen says, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, and, I, I absolutely loved her in this. I um, Well, I've, I've come to know of her because of all my British TV watching. I've been doing her uh, on the, uh, the, what's it called, Taskmaster? She's, I, no, she's not on Taskmaster, but she's been on, I think she was on Big Fat Quiz of the Year, like we were talking about. And so, um, but I had never seen her in anything um, serious quite like this. Uh, and yeah. man, she knocks it out of the park. She's very, very funny. And I actually think that her best performance I've ever seen is in the TV show Fleabag, which is a comedy. She's just hysterical. She's a very funny person. Lately, she's been famous for The Crown, which is a serious history TV show where she does not get to be funny while playing Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. But she's funny in this movie. And I don't know that we have a reason to believe that Queen Anne was a monster with a temper but she kind of plays her that way as a very erratic temper driven woman yeah. and the scenes when she's listening to the music uh by the like string quartet that's playing out on the courtyard and she just starts screaming at them to go away i just was in yeah. stitches about that like, i don't know why she's screaming but she's having a fit she does not want to hear the music yeah so I really liked her performance, but yeah, overall, I just, I am really enchanted with this movie. Thanks for uh, <laughs> letting me bring it onto the podcast. Yeah, it was, it was a, a lot of fun. I read that Olivia Coleman gained like 45 pounds for this role. Did she really? Oh, yeah, wow. it, was, it was a really, really immersive um, experience for me. I feel like I can't imagine anybody doing a, a queen, like it, it was just unbelievable to watch her do that so i i loved every moment of it i think her take is so innovative you know when you think i think a fun thing to think about is like queens in movies and the actresses that have played queens in movies you know it's always going to be like helen mirren or (laughs) i don't know streep or whoever or whoever's been playing queen elizabeth the first you know and a lot of them are kind of similar right like regally regal stately figures that are pronouncing decrees and everything this is not that at all and this is a really intimate look at queen anne who was unhealthy in life 
didn't seem to be enjoying her position on the throne and had a pretty tragic setup. We, we talked about how she had 17 pregnancies and still, even still, did not produce an heir. And that's just a horrifying thing. Yep. So um, I think the movie captures a lot of her sadness. I'll say one more patronizing thing about the music. I must, which is a, another detail that I really love is that in history, the piano was not invented until about 1715, like early 1700s. And while you're watching the movie, you're not going to see, you're not going to hear a piano. You're always going to hear a harpsichord in the Baroque music. Mm. But in the last scene, when things are getting a little sad and everything's being sussed out, there is a piano playing. And that's kind of how it would have really been in history. You know, maybe they played the first piano at the end of Queen Anne's life. That's super cool. I hadn't thought of that. It's, you know, one of those things that, only I am here to <laughs> like in the probably like, yeah, whoever did the music, good job. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this series on the English Revolution. If you like the show, you can follow us on social media at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia on Instagram and at Race and Tyler Pod on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.